First Timothy, and um, I'm going to try to finish it next Sunday. Um, and I didn't realize that was sort of an Advent week for y'all, and I'm, I've never actually acknowledged Advent. As a Baptist, we just didn't ever do that. So I'm learning. But um, anyway, if, if y'all are game, I'd like to try to finish it next week. And, and then um, if you have me back after the first of the year, we'll, we'll go somewhere, wherever the Lord leads us at that point. So <clears throat> um, I have in my ministry almost always ignored the passages like what we're going to deal with this morning basically because it's the work of a pastor. <clears throat> I've not ignored them personally, I just haven't spoken about them. It's sort of uncomfortable, you know, for me to tell the church how they should treat me. And so, because I'm not your pastor, but just a, a passing <laughs> preacher, <laughs> I'm going to speak this morning about how the church should treat their pastor. It's basically how you deal with pastors. Um, I'd like to give you a quote from a guy named Timothy Peck, I believe who's a pastor, who struggled with this whole aspect of preaching to his church about how the pastor should be treated. He says, quote, Today we're going to talk about honoring our spiritual leaders in the Christian community. Now let me give you a disclaimer today. I feel very uncomfortable addressing this topic with you. A pastor who speaks to his congregation about honoring church leaders seems about as tacky as Congress voting themselves a raise. I could say some other things about the things they vote themselves, but I'm not going to do it. Anyway, talking about this subject feels a bit like how I feel when I watch the Academy Awards with the entire entertainment industry congratulating themselves. This is a topic I'd be much more comfortable avoiding or perhaps invite a guest speaker to address. <clears throat> I'm the guest speaker by the way. He goes on to say, but when God called me to communicate the Bible, he didn't just ask me to speak to topics I'm comfortable with, but he called me to speak to every topic the Bible addresses. And whether I'm comfortable with it or not, the Bible addresses the issue of honoring our spiritual leaders. But please check up on everything I say today against the biblical text just in case my ego gets in the way and distorts my words in some way. I, I would agree with him completely. In fact, I, I think I've challenged you before and I'll continue to challenge you. Whatever I say on Sunday morning, you should go and look it up in the scripture yourself and check it out, find out whether I'm on or not. Um, and, and in this case, with the whole issue of how we treat our pastors. Now, if God works through his church, then knowing how the church should work from God's perspective is crucial. If the church has the power of God in it and has the people of God who have the spirit of God in them, then as history has shown from the most powerful, uh, has shown the most powerful force in the world is the church when she's running right. Do you agree with that? I mean, if we looked at ourselves right now, we'd probably go, well, no. But quite frankly, I could go down a list of things the church has accomplished that have made the world better. One of which is the United States of America. God has chosen to use his church 
as his agency to reach a lost world for Christ, to be an agent for good and righteousness in our communities and in the world, to be a place for fellowship so as to meet the inner needs of a person and to grow them in maturity, to teach them how to live a life of worship, integrity, goodness, and joy. The church is to do all of this and more. So learning how God expects the church to run is vitally important to the church community as well as the unchurched community whom, it right, whom a rightly running church will deeply affect. The church is crucial for all of mankind, whether they know it or not. It affects all of mankind, especially when she's running the way she should. So what does Paul say about how the church is to deal with their leadership? I want to read from uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, 17 to the end of the chapter. Paul says, let the elder, now he's exhorting Timothy, remember he's trying to get him up and running as a, as a pastor. He says, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for, for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. May God bless his word. Let's just pray for a second. God, as we open your word here, we ask that you would uh, enlighten it to us, that you would um, fill us with your spirit so that we might see how we might each participate in growing and developing and bettering the church and encouraging the pastor that you give us in the future. Lord, uh, bless this time. Bless your word. In Jesus' name, amen. There's three things I just want to run through this morning. The first is elder care. First, Paul says that the elders who rule well will be counted of double honor. Now, I've always thought about that. They're, if they're counted for double honor, they're counted for double honor in terms of the way we treat them, the way we esteem them. But it also has the idea of uh, the way we take care of them in terms of their finances and their physical stuff. So this seems to have that double meaning. First is the idea of treating the elder who looks over the operation and teaching of the church with great respect and honor. There seems to be two types of elders that Paul is speaking of here. There's the elder who is vitally concerned about the growth, maturity, and direction of the church. He is capable of teaching, but that is not his, his main ministry. His main ministry is one of leadership. 
He is leading and guiding the church in the direction that he believes, along with the other elders, that God would have the church in the direction the church would go. Then, I believe he's also alluding, secondly, to a teaching elder. He works along with the other elders in direction and leadership. But the main focus of his ministry is teaching and preaching the word of God. He gives public direction of the church from the pulpit by teaching and guiding from God's word. Um, Now, as a Baptist, I just want to give a disclaimer here. This isn't the way we worked. And I want you to know it it was wrong. I believe that it's called polity, which is church government. I believe that the Baptist form of church government has hindered them more than helped them. The Baptist church has basically a pastor who does everything, literally everything. They have some deacons who are supposed to be servants, and they help if they're good deacons, but it doesn't work that way. Not in practicality. Whereas in the, your church, you have a, a plurality of, elder, of elders. I find that fascinating. I love it, quite frankly. Um, the church that I've been attending for the last eight years, Helena Community Church, um, they have five elders, and they basically make all their decisions in that um, group. Uh, whereas in the Baptist church, we voted about everything. What happens when you vote? You split. You split apart. That church has a sense of peace and tranquility that is, I think, wonderful. None of this is in my notes, but I just want you to know that <clears throat> I have the utmost respect for elder leadership. And I think what, what, is, um, what I've come to from this passage is, is that there needs to be more than just one leader. At, at Helena Community Church, uh, Jay, um, J.R. Quigley is the teaching pastor, but Jason Harris is the community pastor. He does all the help of the of the families and people of the church, and it works wonderfully. Then they have three other young men. I call them young. Everybody's young right now. (laughs) But uh, they help with the upkeep and the care of the congregation in many different ways. So I think where you guys are in terms of that, as I understand what you're doing, I think it's wonderful. So don't don't think that um, I'm I'm coming from another angle. I think it's biblical. So Dr. Warren Bennis who taught leadership at USC, and as it turns out, he's, he's the father of, of the leadership movement in America. He wrote 38 books. Um, one of the more interesting books Dr. Bennis uh, wrote was called Why Leaders Can't Lead. In that book, Dr. Bennis claims that there's an unconscious conspiracy against genuine leadership in our culture that inadvertently undermines genuine leadership. And just to interrupt that, I believe that part of it's because we're so self-sufficient. We can do it. We don't want to participate in the group. And in the group, you need a leader. We become independent Americans. We're not independent, though, in reality. We need help. We need to work together. He goes on to say, This conspiracy is one reason why, according to Bennis, American society is producing so few genuine, authentic leaders. 
Many futurists are predicting a major clergy crisis in the next several years, which will force most smaller churches with less than 100 people to either choose to either close their doors or share a pastor with one or more smaller churches. Many pastors and church leaders complain about frustration in the area of leadership. Churches can be very resistant to leadership, especially when leadership means changing. I used to tease my church, you know, we don't want to talk about that, that word change. <laughs> I went to a George, I don't know if you're familiar with a man named George Barner. Uh, he's written multiple books on the church, and he, he's a, um, he got his start by being a, um, uh, uh, he, he'd run surveys for big companies like IBM and um, you name it, he did it for them for years. And then he turned all his attention on to running surveys and trying to find out what's going on with the church in America. So I went to this conference of his in Jacksonville, Florida, in um, I think it was 2000. And um, I left there totally discouraged because what he said about the church was, was really shocking. And the one thing that I wa walked away with was this, is in the church, on average, it takes it 30 years to make a major change. At the end of the 30 years, it throws up its hands, has a party, and waits another six years before it starts to do anything else. That's on average across America. So consequently, the church is always behind the eight ball. We're not keeping up with what's going on in our society around us. And part of that's because of the lack of good leadership, but part of it's because we've never put our feet out and go, no, I don't want to change, I don't want to change. Change is hard. <laughs> it's a struggle at times. But in our culture, now think about this. We live in a technological culture in which everything in technology changes in three years. And some would say 18 months. How fast have you gotten a new phone? Because the old one wore out or had something better, you know, that you could get. I had a guy in one of my churches, and uh, he bought every single thing that came out that was new technology. Consequently, he nearly went bankrupt, <laughs> literally. New computers, new phones. Because it changes constantly. Our world is changing at, at cataclysmic speed, if you would. But the church is sort of doing like this. And I would adore you if... As a church, when you bring your new pastor in, let him help you change. I don't know what that will be. I have no idea. Don't put your feet out. Let him, let him help you change so that you might reach the next generation. That's what we need. Is we need churches that are not reaching us. I'm 70. <laughs> My race is almost done. But I want to reach the next generation. Young men like this over here. I want to see churches full of them. And it's going to take some change to do that. Leadership in the church can be very difficult because of this. Paul wants to encourage the church to treat her leaders honorably, to treat those who lead the church rightly. This phrase, um, <clears throat> this phrase that is, uh, let the elders who rule be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. This phrase also gives way to the, for the pay of a person who spends the majority of their time 
in preparation and teaching of the Word of God. Some people believe that there's nowhere in the New Testament that says that a pastor should be paid. I sat down with a Mormon apologist once, and he said, uh, you know, you shouldn't be paid as a pastor. I said, excuse me, and I took him to this passage. And he said, oh, that's not right. And then he turned and says, you have preachcraft. What? Preachcraft? <laughs> what is preachcraft? That was a, a, a Mormon sin for being paid for being a teacher of the Word of God. Paul's pretty blatant about it here if you, if you pick up what he's saying. In 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, I think she's got it up there. Um, and we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, be at peace among yourselves. When I was in seminary, they, said, they told me that it takes 20 to 30 hours to formulate a good sermon for a Sunday morning. I rarely spent more than six to eight because of all the other duties I had as a pastor. If, you're gonna, if you want a pastor who's going to preach the word, he's got to have time to prepare. And he should be paid for that. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 7 to 12, Paul again says, Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat its fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? <clears throat> Do I say these things as a mere man, or does the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of, of Moses you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is, God, is, is it oxen God is concerned about? Paul's asking this. Does he say it altogether for, your, for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt. This is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be a partaker of his hope. In other words, the church should take care of the man who gives them the word of God. Uh, last verse, or verse 11, it says, if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. I could run way down this line, but let me just say one thing that just sort of irks me. And in our, in our society, we have, a, a, we have tiers of how we pay people. So literally at the bottom of that tier, right down close to the bottom, are pastors. In, in, by and large, across the United States. There are some pastors who make lots of money. But most pastors, they pastor a church that's under 100, and the church is not capable of paying them. One of the next tiers up is our teachers in our school systems. I'm not talking about colleges. I'm talking about in our public schools. Our teachers are paid better than they used to be, but they used not to be paid well at all. But then the next tier, the most important tier, or the, one of the top tiers, if you would, are movie stars. We make sure they're paid really well. And this, today... I'm going to go watch a professional football game. I like to watch football. But I despise, if you would, excuse me, 
the way those men are paid to, to play football. It has no eternal benefit. It has no real benefit to our culture except to get us sidelined off to do something else. Our professional athletes think that they're godsend to whatever. And yet they don't give life. This is what gives life. <laughs> the teaching and preaching of the word of God and then the living out of it by the people of God. The equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry is, is paramount for our world. I'm not asking for your money. Please don't mistake me. I'm, I'm, I'm the guest. <laughs> but I think that's a travesty in our, in our culture. That we don't take care of those who give us light, give us food, spiritual food, give us a future. Apparently Paul... Um, he, he also, uh, excuse me, I, I got ahead of myself, but look at Luke chapter uh, 10, verse 7. You've got up um, Deuteronomy 25, but Luke 10. And remain in the same, this is Jesus talking, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the labor is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Now he's sending out the 70. It's, this is where this passage is from. But he tells them, just look, look out. Let, let those households, as you go in, let them take care of you. And if they don't, dust your feet off and go off to the next one. Jesus said that the pastor's to be taken care of physically. So, God's not really concerned about oxen, is he? I mean, he is, but he's not concerned about oxen. He doesn't want, he's talking about people. Luther said, oxen can't read. It's a principle he's giving us here. When one works, one gets paid. Levit the, excuse me, the Levitical priests in the Old Testament got part of the offerings and had special land set aside around the temple city for, the, for their crops to grow in. God took care of them in a special way. In fact, we get the word honorarium from the same Greek word that is used for honoring. So the elders who lead the church with oversight are to be held in high esteem. And the elders who labor in the word and teach are to be honored in both high esteem and in pay. Now, having said that, if the elder or pastor is not taking care of teaching and preaching the word of God to his flocks, then he should not be paid. But realize that there is much to, to, be, to, much to being a preacher of a flock today. Listen to uh, how one man described the work of a pastor. Someone has explained it this way. The pastor teaches, though he must solicit his own classes. He heals, though without pills or knife. He is sometimes a lawyer, often a social worker, something of an editor, a bit of a philosopher and entertainer, a salesman, a front man for public functions, and he's supposed to be a scholar. He visits the sick, marries people, buries the dead, labors to console those who sorrow and to admonish those who sin, and tries to say sweet when chided for, doing his, for not doing his duty. He plans programs, appoints committees when he can get them, spends considerable time in keeping people out of each other's hair. Between times, he prepares a sermon and preaches it on Sunday and Wednesday to those who don't have uh, any other engagements. 
Then on Monday, he smiles when some jovial chap roars, what a job, you only have to work two days a week. And I have had people say that to me. Don't say that to your pastor. <laughs> they work hard. Most pastors do. Some don't, but most pastors do. Most of what a pastor or elder does is never seen by the whole congregation. I believe that it is why Paul now gives instruction about confronting an elder who may be out of line in some way. So there's elder confrontation, secondly, here. In verses 19 to 21, he, he begins to outline how this must come about. Paul calls on the church not only to confront those elders who are out of line, but to also honor those elders with a proper way of confronting. Do pastors and elders sin? Everybody go like this. Yes. <laughs> yes, we are human. We make mistakes. Do they need to be confronted for their sin? Yes, if they persist in it and don't take care of it themselves. How many of you agree we have blind spots in our lives? We all have blind spots. That's why we have fellowship, so that someone can come into our blind spot and help us get out of it. First, do not accept an accusation against a pastoral leader unless it is from at least two witnesses. Seems to me that many pastors are, are tried, if you would, in the court of public opinion, that is gossip, then never confronted and consequently lose their influence for good and never really know why. And I'm going to ask you a question. Ask me how I know that. It's awful when people do that. You should never listen to accusations against a pastor unless it's brought by two witnesses <clears throat> and he has been confronted first. Note what Paul says in verse 20. He says, those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. You rebuke publicly when there is no repentance from the pastor for the behavior that has, been brought, that has brought the rebuke. It's just like what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 18. Did I give you that one? I'm not sure I did. Okay, Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Moreover, if you bother, uh, if you brothers, uh, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But... If he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. That's all in the context of church discipline, he says that. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Now, he says all that in the context of church discipline, 
But the reason I believe he says that is because church discipline is always meant to bring someone back into fellowship. It's meant to bring people back into good relationship. And if two or three of you agree on something, you need to loose them or bind them. You need to set them out or bring them in. Church discipline is is a very difficult thing, but it's something that we don't, well, we don't exercise it very much in America. I think I did it three times in my whole ministry in 27 years. It was extremely difficult. But it needs to be done sometimes. And especially if you have a pastor who's wandering off in the wrong direction. I unfortunately have too many tales of pastors who have messed up big time and split churches or blown churches apart. I'll tell a couple in a minute. It's, it's too often because they're not confronted properly. Con- <clears throat> if confrontation is done properly and the pastor repents after the first meeting, the whole issue should be dropped. It's done. But if that does not happen, then he needs to be confronted by two. And if it's, it's taken care of, then that's as far as it goes. But then if that doesn't happen, then you have to bring it to the church. <clears throat> when I was uh, in seminary at, at Dallas, uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, I joined, it's called East Dallas Baptist Church. It was a little inner city church. As it turned out, the pastor and the deacons were having a hard time together. The pastor was a young guy, he was about 30, 32, and um, I was trying to help him and <clears throat> What had happened was, is the original secretary, when he first got there, wrote a series of letters to the deacons telling them one thing about the pastor, and then he wrote a ser- she wrote a series of letters to the pastor telling them something totally different. It put them at logger jams. They finally found out about two years into it. They fired her, but after that had happened, there was no trust between the deacons and the pastor. All because it wasn't handled properly to start with. She should have never done any of that. Destroyed the church. He he had a heart attack at age 39. The stress was unbelievable. Church wasn't but about 70. And when he left, the church eventually closed and First Baptist Church of Dallas came in and took it over. When we were at Burley... My first pastorate, I had a series of letters written to me that were hateful and had no signature on them. I finally started reading them from the pulpit. I'd get them during the week and I'd stand up and read them. I think I did it twice. It stopped it. Brought it to the light. No one ever confessed to that. But people do things that are not biblical. And consequently, they hurt the church. The most hurtful episode was, for me was when I came home one day. This, I was still in Burley this, when this happened. My wife confronted me about having a supposed affair. Someone had called and said I was involved with another woman. They had never confronted me, gone to my, but they went to my wife with sole intent of causing pain and hardship. I don't know why that person did that. I probably... I'm too blunt sometimes, I realize that. I speak the word, and I, I, I view it pretty black and white. And somewhere along the line, I must have confronted this person. 
I've known of pastors who have gone to a business meeting where they thought everything was good, only to find out that there had been a secret meeting about them, and they were fired in the business meeting. None of that ever happened right. Um, in Dallas, I used to travel to seminary down, uh, I think it was called Ferguson Avenue, and there was Ferguson Avenue Baptist Church. I didn't know anything about it. Right next to it was another church. Didn't really know anything about it. Got to Burley, and a friend of mine from seminary, his name was David Jansen, uh, David had been the youth pastor at Ferguson Avenue Baptist Church until they had that secret meeting and fired him. The church next door had been in a, a part of a split from Ferguson Avenue Baptist Church like 20 years before, so they bought the next door property just to make sure they could see each other. <laughs> and surprisingly enough, that church, or I believe it was that church, maybe it was Ferguson Avenue, split again, and they bought the property across the street and built another church. All because people don't take care of things properly. We're supposed to talk to one another and, and find out what's going on. Sometimes we don't agree, but we still need to talk. Leadership, and especially spiritual leadership, tends to confront sin that people covet. You hear what I'm saying here? A lot of times we have a sin that we don't want to let go of. And we hold on to that. And when we're confronted about it, we get angry about it. Confrontation should always be out of love. And the, and the purpose, Matthew 15, the purpose of that biblical confrontation is restoration. To bring that person into fellowship. Spiritual leaders often say unpleasant things to people, although not in an unpleasant way, but it's still confrontive, and I have a feeling this sermon is sort of that way right now. I mean, I don't like talking about all this stuff, but it's in the Scripture, and we need to deal with it at times. Some people at that point want to get even, and they go at it with a vengeance, especially through slander and gossip. I had a friend over at Canaan Ferry Road Baptist Church who had been a union worker. I won't tell you what, where he's working, but he'd been trained as an agitator in the union so that when they went to their um, uh, negotiations for pay raises and all that kind of thing that, that they did every three or five years, he would start agitating everybody and he would start telling lies about the management. So he came into the church, got right with God, repented of all that. Then he got angry with me. We used to fish all the time together. Took him to India with me. He got angry with me. Never told me what he was angry about. To this day, I do not know what he was angry about. But he began to agitate in the church. And he almost split us. He left the church, went over to Calvary Baptist Church. And two years after he went over there, he came back in my office and he said, BG, I was really bad. I want to apologize. Just about ruined the ministry at Canyon Ferry Road Baptist Church. By gossiping and not telling what was going on, by innuendo and by not being positive and gracious and kind. Paul ends this section by saying that this is all to be done without partiality or prejudice. In other words, a pastor elder is to be treated with a same 
the same as everyone else who comes when it comes to sin. There's going to be a sense of reconciliation and restoration. That's what the church is all about, isn't it? We reconcile first with Jesus, through Jesus with God. And then we reconcile with one another. I don't think, in, I mean, ideally, I don't think in the church there should ever be a place for not having right relationship with one another. I know that doesn't always happen. But we're called to be right with him and then right with one another. And right with our pastor, right with our leadership. So, if a pastor is in sin, first confront him with two people. And then if there's no response, then go to him with the, before the church and confront him publicly, but always with the intent of restoration and, and reconciliation. Let me say one more thing. If you cannot or will not go to the leader yourself, then drop it. Stop it right there. If you think something is so wrong that it needs to be discussed, then the only person it should be discussed with is that leader or pastor or elder, not with a bunch of people in the church. Now, I'm going to say something real hard here. But no, I love you, okay, when I say this. At the point, if you begin to talk it up in the church, you're being used by Satan to split and destroy the church. And you're in sin and against what God wants to do in the church. The true pastoral leader has been chosen by God, and therefore one must be careful how one treats them, or he, him, he will find himself going against not only the man, but God who called the man. Do you remember in the Old Testament, David, at least three times, if not four times, says, I will not touch God's anointed. He had ample opportunity to kill Saul. Went into a cave one time, cut off his cloak while he was using the restroom in the cave. And his men said, why didn't you put him down? Why didn't you just run him through right then? He says, I will not touch God's anointed. Be very careful. The pastor is God's anointed in the church. And if you touch him, I'm not sure what will happen. I don't think it will be good. No, I've been hard enough. That's, I believe, what the pas passage says. So the third thing to see, and let me, I can whip through this hopefully pretty quick, but there's an elder continuation. Verse 22 he says, Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. You know, we need to be wise about how we pick people. And I think y'all are doing a, a good job. You've taken some time and you're walking along through that. It takes time and energy and effort to find God's man for a church. Being called to the leadership of God's church is a solemn responsibility. James states that the teacher will share a harsher judgment for what he teaches than the average layman. So the church is not to call a man hastily into ministry. Verse 23, Paul says, no longer drink only water. He's talking to Timothy about his stomach. And uh, the water in that day was not very good, so they used wine a lot of times to drink. Um, in verse 24, some men's sins are clearly evident. These verses continue to deal with calling a man out into the ministry. Some men's sins are apparent when you 
when you first get to know them. They're right there on the surface. But some men's sins are hidden and take time to reveal themselves to the astute looker. The church is to be wise in this. All men, we all, we all sin fall short of the glory of God. All of us have issues. But be wise. Take time. Get to know. The, the opposite also holds true. Some men, <clears throat> some men's good works are obvious while some men's good works do not show up right at the first. The one who watches will only see when he takes time to really examine what is going on. So take time with finding this God. Interview him. Talk to him. We've talked about some of that as we've gone through 1 Timothy. I'm not going to go through these last verses that I had since we're a little short on time, but I want to read a quote. I've quoted Ray Stedman quite often in this um, guy from Montana, but a great exegete of the Word of God. He said this, Some men appear retiring and quiet, yet they may be very good men. Such men may make the best elders. So do not rush men into leadership. If they have something good going on quietly in their lives, even when these are not conspicuous, Paul says they cannot remain hidden. God will bring it all out if you get close to them. Abraham Lincoln's famous dictum, you've heard this before, but he, he quotes it, you can fool all the people some of the time and some of the people all the time, but you can't fool all of the people all the time. There's a wise word in choosing elders. All this concerns how God's church functions. And it is very important that the church function as God intended it to. I rejoice that in many places, people are again taking very seriously what the scriptures say about the church and church government. They are trying to correct the things that have crept in by tradition through the years. May God help us to understand that when his church functions as it ought to, it's an awesome power to correct and heal the life of a whole area. May he grant us, you, this church, that you will be that kind of church. As you find leadership and as you grow, may you be salt and light to this whole area as you walk holy before him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your concern for your church, for what you have envisioned it to be, and for what you are ready to make it to be as men and women are willing to obey you and walk in the power of your spirit. Lord, grant us to live in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ and of the elect angels that we in, his, in this 21st century hour may be the kind of church you came into the world to produce. Lord, may you anoint this church and use it in ways they never dreamed of to touch and reach this community for Jesus Christ. May you bless them. and May you keep them true to your word. Lord, thank you for your great goodness and love. Thank you for sending us Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.